everybody. Uh, my name is Adam Paul Susnick. Uh, I am the founder of Segregation by Design. Um, is this, this is okay? Cool. Sorry. Uh, I'm not used to presenting, so bear, bear with me. Um, I'm the founder of Segregation by Design. It's a project that uses uh, historic photography to document the destruction of communities of color in American cities due to redlining, uh, urban renewal, and highway construction. So I'll get started. Um, so I recently had the opportunity to write an article for the New York Times. Um, you might have seen it, and a lot of, a lot of what I'm going to be discussing today uh, was in that article. Um, it was a really cool experience, actually. So um, the intent of this project is to go city by city, uh, showing how um, the federal government uh, and federal funding for highway construction and urban renewal um, had a devastating impact on um, basically each and every American city at the particular expense of communities of color. So these are some of the cities that I have um, covered so far. Uh, and most of the examples from today um, will be from these cities. This is the complete list of cities um, that I intend to cover. Uh, these are cities that received federal funding for highway construction and urban renewal through two bills in particular, the 1949 Federal Housing Act and the 1956 Federal Highway Act. Um, and again, er, sorry, in the following images, nearly all the projects are funded by those two bills in particular, the 49 Housing Act and the 56 Highway Act. Um, so what I'm going to do today is present the problems posed by freeways. I'll explain this image in a second. Present the problems posed by freeways and urban, urban renewal projects, uh, the history of how we got here, and what we can do about it. So this is Tampa, Florida. Um, Tampa is divided by interstates, which divide the city pretty cleanly along racial lines. Um, rather than pursuing ways to lessen this divide, uh, in the last decade, FDOT, the Florida Department of Transportation, has actually displaced an additional 750 families, uh, roughly 2,250 individuals, um, with freeway endings in Tampa alone. Uh, the I-4 connector project here cost $500 million dollars, um, so that's, that's where they're spending their money rather than trying to solve this divide. Um, and the connector divides um, the historic neighborhood of Ybor City in half, separating the working class, mostly Caribbean American, uh, East Ybor, from the increasingly gentrifying um, Ybor City Historic District. Uh, and you can see here, brick the brick streets that used to connect the neighborhood are now dead end against uh, sound barriers for the freeway. Um, Miami, in addition, where I'm from, uh, is spending a billion dollars currently. This is, I took this the other day from the Bright Line, uh, which is a cool new train, but um, Miami is spending nearly a billion dollars to widen uh, the Overtown Expressway, um, which cut through the heart of the black community in Miami of Overtown in the 1960s. Uh, and the construction of this highway in the first place ended, or resulted in the near total destruction of Overtown um, and the, the forcible displacement of over 12,000 residents, nearly 100% of them black. The people displaced were offered 
well below market value uh, for the properties, uh, and the people who rented were offered no assistance at all, not even, um, not even moving assistance. So they actually had to pay for the move that they did not um, choose to do. So it's not just, whoops, one second, sorry. Uh, oh, hey. <laughs> uh, it's not just red states that are doing this. Um, this is Los Angeles uh, in, down, in Los Angeles County. Uh, this ongoing project has already displaced hundreds in the primarily Hispanic neighborhood of uh, city of Downey. So more, and this is the, the right of way, um, most of these houses have already been demolished. This is the Bronx. Um, so for the communities that remain divided by these freeways, considerable public health impacts persist. This is um, a noise map that maps, very clearly, that maps very cleanly onto the highway network. This is the Cross Bronx Expressway here. Um, and the purple is actually as loud as, uh, is actually as, loud as a jackhammer. Um, and tens of thousands of people live within, oh, getting echo, live within this uh, noise shed. And moreover, the ring of highways that surrounds the South Bronx here uh, is directly responsible for the incredibly high rates of asthma uh, in the South Bronx. Uh, and I worked with a professor at Columbia Public Health to make this map, um, and we, he demonstrated, Peter Munich, he has a great article out there, that this is actually a, a causal relationship. It's not just correlation. There are other factors, you know, um, access to healthcare, et cetera, um, but this is directly caused by the exhaust um, from the freeways, and in addition, it's also caused by the particulate matter from the brake pads, from the tires. Um, so it's not just, even if we electrify, that's not gonna, that's not gonna eliminate that. Excuse me. Uh-oh. So now, going back, going back a bit into history, so the Cross Bronx in particular was among the first of these interstate highways to be built. Um, it was completed in 1955, and it displaced over 60,000 people in some of the most racially integrated neighborhoods in the country. Um, so I've also highlighted the urban renewal projects here in orange um, that I'll touch on a bit later. But again, as I mentioned, uh, everything here was funded by those two bills, the 1949 Federal Housing Act and the 1956 Federal Highway Act. Um, so the Cross Bronx, as I mentioned, was one of the first built in the country. Um, and it was the first in particular to be built through an existing city rather than through open country. Um, and it was designed by planner Robert Moses, um, who some of you might be familiar with. Um, I'll actually show a video of this in one second, but the Cross Bronx is very important. I'll start this video now. That's not the Cross Bronx, that is the BQE. So this highway, the Cross Bronx, along with the BQE and others in NYC, was highly influential in the development of later highways in other cities. Not just in terms of the route it took through dense neighborhoods, racially integrated neighborhoods, 
but in terms of uh, the institutions that RM developed to make to actualize this project. Um, his Triborough TBT, Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, which is his uh, agency that he used to build these, actually um, was basically the precedent for many other state DOTs that were formed afterwards. Uh, rather than follow a route that would have displaced far fewer people by cutting through some of those parks and cemeteries, uh, Moses overruled local, eject, local objections and forced the highway through the heart of the Bronx. So, back to the presentation. So this is, uh, this is Bob here. Um, so as discussed by Robert Caro in his biography of Robert Moses uh, called The Power Broker, uh, RM, or Robert Moses here viewed uh, New York as more of a traffic problem than an actual place. Uh, and he seemingly delighted in, what, in swinging what he called his meat axe uh, through neighborhoods with populations he despised, um, in particular black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods in, in New York and uh, immigrant neighborhoods as well. So while automobility was viewed as the way of the future at the time, uh, the particular way in which Robert Moses actualized it, uh, and the people who uh, were his sort of disciples um, ensured that automobility became a tool of segregation. Um, so this is a bit on how people viewed automobility uh, after, the, after World War II. This is the future, Futurama exhibit sponsored by GM at the 1936, well, before World War II, uh, at the 1936 World's Fair. Um, Excuse me. So the reason for the sprint to adopt automobiles after World War II, there's many of them, um, but for one, it was the war economy that had brought the United States out of the Depression. Um, and it was imperative to keep that engine running, uh, to keep the economy from collapsing. And it was fairly simple for GM, GE, Ford, to retool from making planes and bombs to making cars and refrigerators for the suburbs. Uh, and in addition, and this, so this is sort of their idealized version of what they thought the future would look like, and it's, it's actually not too far off. Uh, and then in addition, after the war, um, there was a, a sprint to uh, decentralize um, for fear of nuclear attack. But the way in which the adoption of automobility played out on the ground uh, was the destruction of urban communities that really had the least ability to resist, uh, that were cleared in order to make way for these new roads. This is the South Bronx again. Uh, East Tremont was heavily damaged by Robert Moses's projects. Um, a contemporaneous investigation into Moses actually found that basically none of the people that were displaced were rehoused in the, the projects that he built. Uh, most of them were scattered, had to leave the city, or ended up, many of them ended up homeless. Uh, in all, in New York, over 250,000 people were displaced uh, from Robert Moses' projects. And as I mentioned, this is Philly, as I mentioned, other cities followed similar tactics. Uh, forcing highways through working class communities that neighbors, that uh, planners deemed obsolete. Uh, so here in Philly, um, the highway, the Delaware Expressway followed the 
leveled many of the working class communities along the waterfront, and then in addition divided um, northern Philadelphia from downtown. In this case, um, the planner uh, Edmund Bacon, who's actually um, Kevin Bacon's dad, which is kind of interesting, but he was a, a noted disciple of, our, of Robert Moses. He visited him in his house in Larchmont uh, and was highly influenced by him. Oops. Um, so, by the late 1960s in Philadelphia, 14,000 people had been displaced. Despite making up only 26% of the population, um, a full 72% of those displaced were black. In Boston, uh, the highway cut through the medieval heart of the city, um, ramming through Chinatown uh, and the black and immigrant New York streets neighborhood, which is now completely gone. Um, it was, uh, it's where this, where this interchange is here. Um, over 20,000 Boston, 20, Bostonians were displaced, and despite making up only 5% of Boston's total population, 32% of those displaced were black. Um, the vast majority of the rest were Italian, Jewish, and Irish immigrants. While the Big Dig, this is the, this is the central artery that cut through the middle of the city, um, it's been buried since. So the Big Dig attempt, attempted to fix these mistakes by burying the highway, but ultimately it was one step forward, two steps back. Uh, the Greenway is definitely an improvement, but it, it basically sealed downtown's fate as uh, as primarily accessed by car um, and primarily a, a, a suburban automobile-focused city center. Uh, they basically overhauled the entire organizational logic of Boston, um, really, uh, to, to speed commuters in and out of the city. So, Chicago. Uh, in Chicago, the Dan Ryan Expressway, seen here, um, the Dan Ryan cut through uh, the south side um, and swallowed up much of the west side, um, and urban renewal swallowed up much of the near north. Um, excuse me. And by the late 1970s, uh, 81,000 people had been displaced in, in Chicago, and despite making up only 23% of the population, 64% of those displaced were black. One second. Yeah, this cedar fever is no joke. Oh, I'm nervous. Sorry. Um, where are we? Okay. Despite a multiracial coalition led by organizer Florence Scala to save the West Side, ultimately much of it was, was leveled. Buffalo, similar story. 10,000 people were displaced, 67% of whom were black. Uh, in this case, the city paved over... Um, a linear park designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, who was the uh, designer of Central Park and Prospect Park, um, one of the most famous um, landscape designers. And they paved over his park um, in Buffalo while leaving the similar parkways on the... Th so this was on the um, primarily black west side of Buffalo. No, sorry, east side of Buffalo. Uh, they paved over this linear parkway, but the white east... I keep mixing up west and east. The white, the white part of the city had um, parkways that are basically the exact same. You can, um, and they're still intact. And it was really notable during COVID because, um, you know, everyone was socially distancing outside, and you really saw there's there's interesting pictures in Buffalo of 
you know, these parkways on the, on the white side really being used as they were intended, but on the, on the black side, they did not, they didn't have these parks. Miami, where I'm from, um, sort of, West Palm Beach, but uh, Miami followed a similar pattern, displacing over 12,000 people, 100% um, of them black in Miami. Uh, this was Overtown, um, which was completely leveled and is still, um, still uh, not recovered. Um, it's, it's very noticeable. So these, this is Miami on the ground. Um, they really destroyed 2nd and 3rd Avenues, which were the heart of um, Overtown. It was called Little Broadway because it had a lot, of play, a, lot of, um, a lot of theaters. And a lot of uh, musicians, black musicians in particular, would perform in Overtown because they couldn't stay on Miami Beach because it was uh, whites only. So these new highways cut through downtowns and made possible the development of new car-centric suburbs on the outskirts of existing cities. And these suburbs were whites only. Um, they, most of them, uh, common at the time was a real estate practice called um, restrictive covenants. Uh, and that is where the developer writes into the deed that it can only be sold to members of the Caucasian race. Um, and this was a standard practice across the country. This is an example of one of those actual <laughs> the language is, you know, is crazy. Um, I actually forgot that it said those things. That's, that's, that's crazy. But these were um, common practice all across the country, from Miami to San Francisco to Minneapolis seen here, um, to Austin, to Houston. Um, so this was standard industry practice um, until the mid-60s. Uh, these have technically been invalidated uh, by the Supreme Court, but um, they still, the, the effects of them are still being felt. There's some great articles about, there, uh, about that out there. So in addition to the um, restrictive covenants, uh, even if they didn't have those, many of these new suburbs um, used exclusionary zoning tactics, so, for instance, requiring or prohibiting multifamily housing, um, requiring the, or only allowing the cities to build single-family housing, um, meaning that only people who could afford such a house could live there. Um, and that was outside of many people's price range, obvious, obviously. Um, and in addition, things like parking minimums uh, in the suburbs have made it so it's just difficult to build housing. Um, so these practices, restrictive covenants, um, exclusionary zoning and uh, um, the development of highways uh, encouraged and exacerbated white flight um, and American city centers entered a period of significant decay uh, as cities cut back on municipal services uh, one second as cities cut back on municipal services um, because tax bases dried up uh, due to white flight. And again, city centers entered a period of significant decline. And this begins the era of urban renewal. Um, so this is Boston seen here. Um, with highway construction and white flight in full swing, uh, city centers sought to remake, or city, sorry, cities sought to remake their civic cores for the convenience of suburban white commuters. 
Um, this was also sponsored by federal legislation like the highways. Um, this was the 1949 Federal, Heis federal Housing Act, which paid for two-thirds of this. So cities really jumped at the opportunity because they were basically leaving money on the table if they, if they didn't do this. So again, cities used the decay as an excuse to remake their course for the convenience of commuters. Uh, in this case, the Italian and Jewish neighborhood of um, the West End was completely leveled. Um, this is actually, so that the chief planner in Boston, Ed Logue, who was another dis uh, Moses disciple, also visited him at Larchmont. Um, he deemed this neighborhood obsolete, uh, and it was leveled uh, over the course of two summers. Uh, and this neighborhood is actually where um, uh, Leonard Nimoy is from, um, Spock. Um, so there's some cool, there, he has some cool interviews of uh, what it was like actually living here. Um, oh, and urban renewal. Let me play one more video. So James Baldwin said... A boy last week, he was 16 in San Francisco, told me on television. Thank God we got him to talk. Maybe somebody will start to listen. He said... I've got no country, I've got no flag. Now, he's only 16 years old. And I couldn't say you do. I don't have any evidence to prove that he does. They were tearing down his house because San Francisco is engaging, as all, most northern cities now are engaged, in something called urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. Getting, it means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is, a, is, is, is an accomplice to this fact. Now this, we're talking about human beings. There's not such a thing as a monolithic wall or, you know, some abstraction called the Negro problem. These Negro boys and girls who at 16 and 17 don't believe the country means anything that it says, don't feel they have any place here on the basis of the performance of the entire country. But now, Jim... No, am I exaggerating? No, I... Certainly could not say that you're exaggerating. So. so, as James Baldwin said, urban renewal means Negro removal. That's what it means, and the federal government is an accomplice to that fact to this fact. And he's again referring he says it later in that interview, but he's referring to those, the 49 um, slum clearance bill and then the 56 interstate bill, which again provided um, federal funding, basically unlimited, unlimited tap of money. So urban renewal projects targeted communities of color with such intensity um, that even in, in cities, so with this, this chart I made with the New York Times, it's in the article, but what this chart is showing is that, for instance, here in Philadelphia, despite making up I actually mentioned this earlier, but despite making up only about 20% of the population in uh, 1960, um, about 70% of those displaced were people of color. In Philadelphia, that's mostly black. Um, in other cities, in Puerto Rico, it's, it's um, a lot of, oops, in New York, it's a lot of Puerto Ricans, um, as well as black people as well. Um, so in nearly every city, it disproportionately affects the non-white community. So 
cities paved over vibrant, this is Boston, Roxbury, cities paved over vibrant neighborhoods and replaced them with amenities focused on suburban commuters. In this case, uh, in Roxbury, which is officially known as the heart of black culture in Boston, um, that's it's on their website. Um, but in, in Roxbury, the government leveled uh, Dudley Square, now Nubian Square, which was the center of the neighborhood. Um, this church um, was actually led by Reverend Michael T. Haynes, um, a local civil rights leader in Boston, um, and he has some really sad interviews about his mom's house was uh, taken through eminent domain, and she was offered $6,000 for it, which was well below market value at the time, well below. Uh, but, yeah, and she, she later uh, died. Um, so... This is Chicago. Um, in select northern and western cities, uh, urban renewal also took the form of um, the development of public housing, well, which is obviously a great idea in theory, um, but the way that we actualized it um, was not. Uh, so cities like Chicago and New York um, developed highly dense high-rise public housing and they exclusively located them in already in existing communities of color. Um, the intent of this, so prior to the 1960s, officials in Chicago were very open uh, about what their intent of this was. Uh, they wanted to, here in Chicago, they wanted to over, limit the overflow of people of color from the near north side into um, the Gold Coast, uh, which is one of Chicago's um, wealthiest neighborhoods. Um, thus, the goal of the high-rises was containment through segregation, concentrating people of color into specific locations uh, and limiting their, housing, uh, limiting their housing options elsewhere. So egregious was the discrimination in Chicago's public housing that in 1966, the Supreme Court actually found them in violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Oh, I'm not in full screen mode. Um, still more urban land uh, was used for institutional expansion, as seen here. The Maxwell Street Market in Chicago uh, was completely leveled. Uh, for an expansion of the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, this market was located in the Italian, Black, and Jewish West Side. And it's actually interesting that the market, um, I think I have another picture here, yeah. Uh, the market, Maxwell Street Market, um, was known, a lot of musicians would perform there. It's where the Chicago, so it's known as like the, the birthplace of the Chicago blues because a lot of performers would come, because uh, that's where everyone was, and then in order to be heard over the, the market, they, they used amplify, you know, they used um, electric guitars. Um, it's, it's, if you've seen the movie The Blues Brothers, a lot of it takes place in the market before it was destroyed, actually, and there's some great scenes. Uh, this is Atlanta, the neighborhood. So, this slide is actually out of order, so going to backtrack a little bit, but um, in Atlanta, so again, center cities were demolished and remade for the convenience of people in the suburbs, um, and this is Atlanta, the neighborhood of Mechanicsville, which was a black neighborhood south of downtown here, um, named after the many 
railroad mechanics. Um, railroads actually were one of the first desegregated industries. Uh, and these were mechanics, so it was a skilled job. Um, it, was a very, it was a fairly upper middle class neighborhood at the time. Um, and they completely cleared it for the, the construction of the highway. And then in addition, again, they, cities try to remake their cores to attract people, not to attract people from the suburbs, not necessarily to live there, but to spend money, go to a game, and get the hell out at night. Um, they tried to train, you know, transform downtowns into nine to five uh, office districts. That's why here in Austin, you know, this building, you know, this, uh, the, the convention center, you know, is, is uh, convention centers are another example of the type of uh, giant building that they pop on downtowns. This is Bedford Stuyvesant. Uh, even in New York, um, many roads were transformed um, to be easier to commute to by cars. Miami. This is what I was trying to get to here. So um, in other cases, this is so still talking about urban renewal. In other cases, neighborhoods that were destroyed for urban renewal were simply abandoned uh, as the projects were canceled halfway through. Uh, in this case, in Eastwick in Philadelphia, the neighborhood was totally leveled, uh, displacing 10,000 people. One resident wrote in protest when they declared the neighborhood a slum. She said, most, people con most people's conceptions of slums is a filthy cluttered section breeding disease and criminals. The majority of Eastwick is green grass and trees. The city plans on building project homes to clutter up these green fields, laying a model, laying a model foundation for a slum area to develop. If the city council passes this bill, Eastwick residents will be a mass of displaced persons forced to buy other homes, many beyond their means. Ultimately, that's what happened. Um, the community was scattered and destroyed. Uh, and then the land was sold back to a private developer who um, did not end up developing it due to lack of demand from the type of people that he wanted to sell to. So what can we do about it? All right. Um, I'll get to that in a second. I don't, uh, so, one second. <laughs> okay, so, as I mentioned, many cities destroyed public spaces, um, destroyed their downtowns uh, in order to make it easier to commute to, uh, and many public goods were destroyed. So in this example, um, so this is, an example from a book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, who I mentioned, she's actually speaking right now um, at the same time as me, which is a little frustrating, but she's doing a book signing after this, so I'd go to that. But um, so the central metaphor of her book, um, so it's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs All, uh, costs all of Us. Um, the central metaphor of her book is the public swimming pool. Uh, in, before the 1950s, public swimming pools were common in American cities. Uh, and they were segregated, they were whites only. Um, in the 1950s, when the, the Supreme Court orders desegregation, rather than integrate these pools, um, many cities actually just drain them and demolish them. Uh, this is Baltimore, this happened all over the country in Montgomery, in Montgomery Alabama, uh, there's many examples. Um, so, the point, oh, and then after, the, after these pools are drained, this is when you see then the rise in popularity of backyard swimming pools in the suburbs. 
So what happened in this example is in the name, oh, and many cities were open about why they were doing this. St. Louis was very open about why they drained their pool. Buffalo too. Um, it was to avoid integration. Uh, and so what happened here is that in the name of avoiding integration and upholding segregation, we destroyed a public good and privatized it. And now uh, we made it for the only people who could afford backyard swimming pools. Um, so that is to some extent what we did with public transportation as well. We did that, many public goods were destroyed, um, but public transportation was left to decay as white flight was in full force. This is Philadelphia, this is the public transit network, the electric public transit network in 38 versus today. These networks were left to decay and were demolished, um, especially ones that served uh, Center, dense city, city centers. Stations were removed, access was limited. And this happened all over the country. We significantly downsized our public transit networks um, as we sought to redefine what public meant. New York, Berkeley, uh, Oakland, Chicago again. And even in cities that we don't typically think, this is Miami, even in cities that we typically don't think of as um, having grown up around uh, accessible public transit, um, this is Miami, even Miami had a significant network. Even Houston had a significant transit network. Um, but it is gone. So what can we do about it? I said that earlier, but now I'm actually gonna get into it. So uh, one of the, um, so in my professional work, work I work at, a, at the engineering firm ACOM, um, and we, I've been focused in particular on the Cross Bronx Expressway. Um, one of the things we're trying to do is mitigate pedestrian deaths. One of the predictable results of having built all these highways through neighborhoods of color is that there's more pedestrian deaths there because there's more traffic, um, and in addition, there's been less investment in safety infrastructure. So we're trying to change that. Um, we worked with the city to map the pedestrian deaths and you can really see that they are concentrated in the South Bronx in particular. So again, this is the South Bronx here. Uh, and many of these roads are high speed, dangerous roads. The Grand Concourse was remade for cars, um, made very dangerous. So one of the projects I've worked on um, is the boulevardization, which is kind of a mouthful, of the Sheridan Expressway seen here in the South Bronx. So the Sheridan was built uh, by, by RM in the 50s. Uh, yeah, the 50s. Um, and it divided the South Bronx from Starlight Park down here. Uh, and they also basically completely leveled Starlight Park. Starlight Park was a former, um, it was basically the Bronx's Coney Island. Uh, but it burned down, and then they replaced it with another park, but that park was gutted um, because they used it as a staging area for the construction of the Cross Bronx Expressway. Um, and when they were finished, they basically just left it abandoned. So what we did here um, is we, it's called designing. So this is no longer an interstate. Um, it's still pretty, it's not as safe as it could be, but we made some progress. Um, so we re reactivated the park, turned the, turned the uh, boulevard into more pedestrian friendly uh, environment. 
and pedestrian deaths actually have been reduced. Um, excuse me, have been reduced on this corridor. We haven't, we don't have like a ton of data yet, but um, I'm pretty confident that it will help. Uh, and yeah, in addition, we we provided connections across the river. Um, there were connections back in the day, but many of them were demolished. There's actually fewer bridges today between this is. This isn't Harlem and the Bronx, but there's actually fewer bridges today between Harlem and the Bronx than there were in the 30s. Uh, and as part of this project, um, you know, it was interesting during COVID, you know, it was during COVID, so we did a lot of, normally we do a lot of public outreach um, in person, but um, this time we did it virtually and we actually got like a lot more uh, people attending because, because it was virtual. So I, I think that's something they might keep adopting. And now we're trying to do something similar for the Cross Bronx. Um, we are trying to, you know, potentially cap it. I would prefer removing it, but that's kind of a tough, tough issue. But so now we're working with the mayor um, to, uh, where is that? There. We're working with the mayor to, um, to study potentially mitigating the damage, well, to study mitigating the damage from the Cross Bronx. That's actually my graphic there, which is pretty cool. Um, and, okay. So, other countries, though, have shown that even more bold solutions are possible than capping. Um, so, this here is Utrecht in the Netherlands. Um, they, in the uh, 70s, built over one of their historic canals with a highway, um, and everyone immediately hated it. Uh, and they, they ripped it out um, and re restored the canal. But what's, what's important about this project, and this one over here that I'll explain in a second, is that they didn't just remove the highway, they, um, well they did, but then they built a tram line next to it. You know, they replaced the, there was still transit travel demand um, that needed to be met, and they, they, they did that. Uh, they, they built a tram line, which is something that we seem incapable of doing. Um, and then this is uh, the, I can't pronounce it, but um, this is a river in Seoul um, that was built, it's hard to actually get good pictures of the before, um, I'm not sure why, uh, but it was built over a tributary of the Han River, the river that goes right through Seoul. Um, and it basically, like, it's a, the river was underneath there, it basically became like an open sewer. Um, and in the 2000s, they ripped it out uh, and daylighted the river, and it's now become one of the most popular um, attractions in Seoul. Uh, it's like a six-mile-long linear park. It's also um, useful for just transportation. It's like a high line on steroids. Um, but again, they didn't just rip out the highway. They built two parallel metro lines to relieve that demand, and in Seoul, they changed a lot of the land use, um, eliminating parking minimums um, and building more dense housing. So this isn't a great example, but it's Oakland. And uh, it's not a great example because um, the city didn't proactively do this. This collapsed in an earthquake. So I don't think they get credit for that, but they did, they did improve it. Um, and... Okay, let me show you one thing. Okay. So, 
even there actually are some places in the United States that are doing a decent job of, of mitigating this damage. So this is Rochester, New York. Um, and you can see this highway. So cities were really obsessed with um, looping, with sort of protecting in space their downtowns. Um, because, you know, white flight causes these inner city neighborhoods, I'm not saying that as a dog whistle, I mean literally the, the neighborhoods near downtown become primarily non-white because of white flight, um, but cities want to sort of save and salvage their, uh, their historic and uh, commercial downtowns by remaking them for um, people in the, in the suburbs and making it easier for them to access. So this loop is a really common theme. Um, it, it's like tech, Houston, um, you know, Kansas City, uh, and then where there's not a full loop, there's often a river or something that causes that uh, that completes the the sort of wall. Um, so this loop, though, they've actually demolished it, and they didn't do what Boston did, like burying it. Um, they actually, so it's cool because I like to do this like this. So you can see that 2014, but then they fill it in and they build housing, which is awesome. I love to see this. They repair the grid. Um, it, some of it's affordable housing. There's not, a, there's not enough, but, um, but this is such a great project. And I'm always shocked to see that this is, you know, in the United States. So maybe we can, yeah, there you go. Um, Syracuse is doing something similar, um, tearing down the highway that cut through the 15th Ward, which was the, um, the heart of the black community there. Um, it was actually started as a freedman's town uh, way back in the day. Um, okay, so to close, um, so the recently signed Inflation Reduction Act uh, and the um, IIJA, the that I don't remember what it stands for. The two uh, bills, uh, infrastructure bills, actually threatened to feed our national appetite for highway widening by, by emphasizing the funding of electric vehicles at the expense of more equitable and sustainable modes of transit. The federal government is choosing to repeat past mistakes, encouraging cities and encouraging cities and states to do the same. Demolishing someone's house uh, for the convenience of, an, of a suburbanite driving an electric car is hardly any better than if the car were powered by gasoline. So President Biden actually has a phrase, a phrase he likes to say, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. It's, it's not looking great. <laughs> they, uh, they, this project was given, um, I think, $4 billion, but then the actual uh, project highways were given about $100 billion. So it's, it's, that's the budget. Um, so we shouldn't double down on failed urban highway planning that keeps Americans divided from one another. For the United States to adapt to a changing and urbanizing world, the federal government must reckon with the automobile-based segregation it has encouraged for the past 70 years, uh, investing instead in public transit and walkability. And yes, in many cases, cities should follow Rochester's lead, recognizing that these hulking concrete structures are a failed 1960s technology. They're the mistakes of the previous generation. We should tear them down, um, let cities heal. Um, I'll end there. Uh, this is 
sources. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of sources. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do this project without all that. Like, it, this is, I'm very, like, I'm sort of an editor almost, like, because I'm just, like, taking, you know, um, these people have written about this for years, uh, so I wouldn't be able to do this without, without all of these folks. Um, like Heather McGee, who's, again, speaking at the same time as me. Uh, so, yeah, I'll end there. And if you, can, you can support me on Patreon if you want. <laughs> uh, and yeah, follow me on Instagram. Um, that's where a lot of the content lives right now. Question? Hi. Thanks. Hi, thank you. Is this coming out? Yes, it is. Uh, we chatted a bit before the session talking about what's going on in Austin. Yeah. The uh, redo of Interstate 35. And I guess what I was hoping to hear is something that would make me optimistic, and I haven't. Is there any Sorry. success stories of, or any ideas of uh, uh, who, who would be champions to help uh, rethink the idea of a, of a large freeway through the middle of town, replacing it by a boulevard? Is there any visions of that to present? I don't, looking for help. Yeah, sorry, it was so doom and gloom the whole time. Uh, that's why I like this Rochester example. I'm not super familiar with Austin. Um, like I said, I, I try to go city by city. Um, let me... Uh, but the idea of, I mean, Rethink, the Rethink organization is excellent. Um, and I'm speaking with them soon. Um, oh, this is really lagging. But, I mean, boulevardization, I think, is, is the route. Um, it's interesting because the I-35 was built on a linear park, I think. Um, like, I was looking at the historic aerials of it, um, and it was, it was a linear park similar to that one in uh, Buffalo. Um, you know, uh, I would love for them to rip it out and restore the park, um, but I'm not sure, I don't know if that's where the, the funding or uh, trends are heading. I'm sorry, I can't have a better answer for that. You know, Houston is, is doing something similar. Um, you know, they've displaced uh, roughly about 1,000 families uh, in Houston for this I-45 widening. They've already demolished um, a lot of public housing. It was public housing, you know. I'm just rambling. I, I don't have a great answer for you. I'm sorry. Um, hi, I have two questions. Uh, one of the questions is, can you address the, I think there has been a, a little bit of mythology about winding um, these highways because that would make traffic better. But I think I saw something in the New York Times recently where that's just a myth that doesn't help traffic at all. Right. Um, so I don't know if you want to address that. Oh, yeah. So you're asking about induced demand. Yeah. So that's, I mean, also at the core of this is that these highways don't actually work, right? Like, um, they never really have. Uh, the, in, in the power broker, the biography of, of Moses, um, you know, he talks about uh, they open the Long Island Expressway three days later, it's jammed. Uh, so their solution is build more, build more. Um, and, and, and then they're jammed and jammed and jammed. Because uh, 
I mean, if folks aren't familiar with induced demand, it's, it's the phenomenon in which it's basically build it and they'll come, but um, that is basically it. But highways also encourage a certain type of development that uh, creates traffic, you know. Um, it creates decentralized, sprawling uh, development um, that leads to more traffic. Now, uh, I, that message hasn't like really permeated uh, a lot of the industry, frankly. Um, traffic engineers are still acting the way they do. Um, so, and what was the question? I'm sorry. That, that was the question I wanted to just see. Oh yeah, I'll just discuss induced demand. I had a second question. I'm sorry for people who are behind me, but the, my second question was, in the case of Rochester, right? Yeah. Um, is that really helping the communities that were disserviced? you know, when the highway was crossed, or is it just creating gentrification? That's a great question. No, and I don't know how to answer that, because it, it's, um, I'm working with this organization, Smart Growth America, um, and they're, they're found, or they're, one of the people there, Beth Osborne, she was saying, yeah, there's this phenomenon where it's like, uh, the moment we make any neighborhood slightly better, it gentrifies. Um, and that sucks. It's like, and, and there's so much, this is like, the Cross Bronx, that's why it's so complicated, because a lot of the people there rely on that highway um, for, for work, um, for commercial reasons. Uh, it, I don't know if it's helping the community in Rochester, because it, it, so, that community was scattered. Um, that's a really good question, sorry. And I'll just give one piece of caution, because I actually used to live in Yonkers. For those who don't know, Yonkers is just five minutes north of the Bronx. Yeah. And a lot of what we consider downtown Yonkers now is being gentrified. Why is it being gentrified? Because it's close to the train station that leads people into the city. And that whole, it's right close to the Hudson River. It's a beautiful promenade. And it's been completely gentrified. And they're doing a lot of beautification of downtown now but for the wrong purposes, right? Yep. Not helping the community, the community that's there right now, it's being again displaced. And, and um, th thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, this goes back to that, that sort of idea of the, of the drained public pool that Heather McGee was talking about. You know, well, I'm thinking of that, that show about Yonkers, um, Show Me a Hero, you know, where everyone was up, and, it was a great show, um, by the same writer as The Wire, really good. But um, uh, public housing became, like one of the solutions would be proper public housing like other countries have. Um, but they, that's, public housing is a dog whistle now too, you know. Um, it, it's, we've so redefined the word public here uh, in such a pernicious, um, racist way. Uh, and we, we don't have the mechanisms in place to protect the communities from gentrification. We also don't want to. Those cities want to gentrify. Especially, I mean, I'm sure younger, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. Um, but that requires so, so much change, you know? And the way we do affordable housing isn't great because um, we build so little and then make people rely on a lottery, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, it would be great if we could have, like, comprehensive regional planning 
like because because all these cities are acting in um, isolation with of one another and in competition in some cases, um, and we have no ability to to even begin to address that. Uh, I I don't know. You know, I mean, the solution. I'm not like a market. What is it called? Like a market yimby or whatever, who says that if you just build more housing, that'll fix everything. No, you need to build affordable housing. Um, we're not doing that. We don't build enough. Um, and oh, sorry. Um, yeah. So, we, it, and and public housing is just gone. We haven't built new public housing in decades. Um, now we do Section Eight, which is again like a lottery system. It's weird. Um, so. In short, I, I don't have an answer for that either. Sorry. Um, it's just, it's, it's so comprehensive. But thank you. That's a really important question. Because um, I'm, I'm writing an article for the New York Times right now about uh, the, the pedestrian death issue, right? And it's like, one of the reasons that pedestrian deaths are concentrated in neighborhoods of color is because they've been consistently disinvested in through redlining um, and, you know, a bunch of different uh, sort of technically non-racist, but absolutely racist policies. Um, you know, so, so much of, of uh, the, the past 50 years, oh, sorry. Oh, uh, so much of the past 50 years is like, once desegregation happens, is, is trying to recreate that through other means, you know? Um, if we can't have a physical, if we can't have a policy color line, um, then we're gonna build a goddamn highway. Uh, and that's what Miami did. Um, yeah. Well, why was I saying that? <laughs> sorry. Oh, uh, uh, one, sorry. And the, the pedestrian issue, right. And it's like, um, oh yeah, they don't, these neighborhoods don't have sidewalks. Um, and sick, the, the Smart Growth America has the stat, it's 67% of pedestrian deaths happen where there's no sidewalks. It's not rocket science, you know, it's, it's, it's there's no sidewalk, there's no crosswalks. Um, and, but, but if we put those in, then yeah, gentrification. That does happen. Um, that happened in Wynwood in Miami. Um, it's happening in Overtown now. It, but, and I, I don't know, it sucks. It really sucks. Um, yeah. So, thank you, okay. Um, hi, I'm a data visualization designer and I love your work, love your Instagram account. I think you're doing amazing social justice work, honestly. Um, and I just wanted to ask, well, first off, fuck Robert Moses. Yeah. And second, um, how do you stay hopeful through all of this? Like, I love following your content, and um, especially when you, like, do the little outlines of, like, what buildings are missing from communities. That's incredible and, like, heartbreaking to see yeah. what we've lost. Um, how do you stay hopeful while you're producing and doing all of this research, like it's, I mean, like I'm, I can only imagine because I'm like you know consuming and like looking and reading what you post, but to actually be researching it, that's like immensely depressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Important. Uh, how do I stay hopeful? Do I seem hopeful? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. No. I mean, what's incredible is that whenever I do a new city, um, like there's always. It's like this, right. um, there's so many people in these communities that are aware of this and are fighting. Um, you know, Stop Text Dot, uh, this organization I've been working with in Houston. Um, that, so I, that was 
not related. Um, yeah, I mean, everywhere, like here in Austin, there's uh, Rethink 35. Um, uh, hopeful. I mean, these people are, are on the ground doing the work. I'm behind a screen. Um, so I'm very privileged in that regard uh, that I can just sort of drop in and, and, and uh, say my stuff. Um, but in every city that I've gone to, there's organizations that are fighting to reverse this stuff. Um, so that's like super cool. Like Minneapolis, um, uh, Boston, definitely. Uh, although, you know, Boston's made some bad choices. But uh, Atlanta, Miami, um, it, like these, the memory is still really alive in a lot of these communities, which is cool. Um, so that's why I'm hopeful, because it's, and it, it, you know, the pat. There's that quote, the past is never past, it's not, or the past is never dead, it's not even past. Because um, so much of this was like 40 years ago um, that it's just still alive, which is cool. Um, it's a little weird. Uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an architect. Um, a lot of the buildings that we study, like canonical buildings, like Penn Station in New York, they're gone. Which is weird. It's like what, but we still study them and we act like they're there. It's like the memory is still really alive. Yeah. Um, I guess that's why I'm hope, yeah. a little hopeful is that people are fighting. You know, uh, I, I I'm trying to like amplify this issue, um, but there's people out there who have been doing it their whole lives, um, who live next to these things, um, and they're fighting. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I try to support them if I can, but... Hi. Uh, thank you so much for coming out and just, like, bringing more awareness to the issue. I, my question is more involved with, um, would you say, maybe not necessarily popularity, but would you say awareness is also being increased due to the fact that some people have come to the realization that, like, um, walkability is, like, a big... Um, like issue they would like to not issue like something they would like to restore yeah. um, or even just like awareness of like you know some people are kind of like I don't want to have to own a car in order to make a living or in order to just like get by or go to the grocery store or do whatever necessity needs to be done go to the doctor whatever it may be um, would you say that's something that has like kind of like influence the awareness of this issue going on right now? Or would you say it's more like, well, because maybe it's more like my negative way of thinking where I'm kind of like, there's no way people are just seeing this now and they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe we should do something about it. Yeah. I feel like it's more um, privileged communities that are kind of like, well, I don't want to have to do this. Yeah. So can we do that? I, I don't know if that question makes sense. So. Um. Sorry. I was just asking if walkability. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, to some extent. Um, I, I had something I was going to say. No, I really had something good. But <laughs> sorry. Walkability, automobiles, cars. Well, if it comes back to you. I'm sorry. Eventually. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> um, oh, well, what, what I was going to say... Uh, I mean, I think COVID like really supercharged this because the disparity and shittiness of our built environment really became obvious. Um, that's what I was going to say. Uh, 
I mean, there's a lot of things that are sort of bringing it to a four, but I, it's getting worse. I think that it's it's like the the there's the rate of pedestrian deaths last year was the highest it's been since the introduction of the Model T. It's it we, the, which is crazy, but more people are dying now, despite all of our traffic safety improvement and. The, um, I think that the issue is just get and and you know we keep widening these highways and they it never ever works it has never worked once uh ever none of these highways work not a single one um and i think we're realizing that um and you know but it is you know it is also a privilege to you know sort of demand a type of infrastructure. Um, and they get listened, the people, you know, it's, it's, Beverly, it's the rich people who get listened to. Um, yeah, I don't know if that really answered the question, <laughs> sorry. Thank you though. Hi, um, I live in Indianapolis, um, Indiana, and um, a place that, this has happened everywhere of course, but um, we have, three huge um, historically black neighborhoods that were completely um, taken apart by the highways and um, working in nonprofit organizations, hearing stories from people saying about how when they put the highway up, how they remember as kids, like riding down it with their bike because they thought it was a new street for them to play on before it actually opened, um, to losing jobs um, because of being cut off from grocery stores or neighbors or um, factories. Um, but I, I have two questions. One of them is more surface. Can you put the QR code back up there with your sources sure. so that way I can save it? Um, thank you. Thank and you. The other one is um, my, uh, my partner is a regional and urban planner for the city of Indianapolis, um, trying to help, help with beginning to undo um, some of this work, but um, some of their personal work focuses on environmental hazards in the neighborhoods and how the highways also contribute to that. So my question is more about um, where um, collaboration and connection work between like government organizations, NGOs, architects, and urban planners, and other people who also need to be at the table that I don't know off the top of my head um, to um, to remediate because you can't fix this because this has already happened yep. and people have already been displaced and under-resourced and targeted and all of that. So like how do the people who are actually deciding on how our built environment is constructed, how is that conversation hopefully happening more? Hopefully happening more? Hopefully. <laughs> I mean, it's not. <laughs> so uh, you're asking, um, I mean, in New York, uh, sorry, so. My question is more about like, maybe some instances of places where those three, like those major four mm -hmm. um, are working together oh, to sure. actually like remediate or even plan for the future to um, 
I don't know, earmark funds to be able to do certain things or to think about or re-envision how, like in Indianapolis, our highway had the option of going underground. Mm. And I know that doesn't necessarily make it better than being above ground, but that would have mean that all of the thousands of homes that they got rid of in the black neighborhoods wouldn't have been demolished and people wouldn't have lost their home values. So on the now, how are those groups or can they work together to remediate? Yeah, definitely. Um, like in Oakland, uh, there's, I forget what it's called, but um, there's like a community development corporation that's working with uh, California Department of Transit. Um, it, it, I mean, that is happening in some places. Uh, New York is pretty good about um, uh, collaborating um, across agencies. That's not really true. I don't know why I just said that. Um, sorry. <laughs> it's just, it's just they, do, they are doing some good projects. Um, I guess, I mean, I can point to like places where that's happening. Um, if that's like in, in Oakland in particular, um, in East Oakland, uh, you know, in East Oakland is where a lot of the black population was displaced to after they built 980 through the heart of West Oakland. Um, and yeah, this community development corporation is working with the mayor. Um, and, you know, it, it helps that they have a lot of buy-in. You know, it's California. Although Southern California um, is doing the opposite, so I don't, I don't know. Um, it's, it's really like, it depends on where you are, I guess. Um, like in Miami, there's no community input at all. Uh, and where there is, it's ignored or just shelled. They do not care. Um, Texas does not care. Uh, the cities might, but the state does not. Um, they are not listening. They are just barreling ahead. Um, so it really depends where you are. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. I keep it's okay. Also, like I said, my partner's an urban planner. I know that most of the answers are like even more stressful than the one that you just posed. So I just I figured I'd ask anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, and, yeah, Indianapolis. Good luck. Hi. Um, thank you for asking that question because it was something that was on my mind as well. My name is Darlene Hightower. I'm the CEO of the Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago. Okay, so you would be able to answer that question better than me. So, first black one too, like what is that all about? Our organization has been around for like 90 years. But anyway, um, she asked my question about collaboration because as I've come into this role, I'm trying to figure out how we work with government and other partners to um, right some of the wrongs that were done. But since you already kind of got to that question, I a couple of comments. It's amazing to me how complicit politicians, federal government, and others were mm -hmm. in this process. Like, this didn't just happen. Like, it was by design, you know, as is you know, stated by your um, topic here. And so it feels like it's going to take collective action for us to undo those wrongs. And then secondly, you, throughout the entire um, conversation, have been like, I'm so nervous. I'm usually in the background. Don't be nervous about this work. This room should be filled. Everybody should hear you. what you have to say. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really, really important. So just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Thank you. Okay, actually, the I think the microphone is off or something. Okay. That's better. Thank you. Okay, the previous two ladies kind of asked my question, but I do have something. With your project, it's 
I mean, we've gone through a lot of emotional, you know, moment and a lot of hopeful moment. But I wonder if this project can be pushed push a little bit further to work with cities where you go and to design this space, sort of bring people together, not just pass by or walk over to the other side, the other side, you know? It should be the, there should be the public space to bring everyone in where city hold the event that people, everyone, will come over and come together. I mean, physically together doesn't mean heart is together. And that's what we want. It, to change the fundamental fundamental mistake we have made that created very painful life for many. That should be what we were doing. And I am just wondering whether this project can just can be taken a little bit further to that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that's great to end on too. I mean, it's just me right now. Um, I, would, I would love to collaborate more with the organizations in the city. Um, I also do feel a little, at first, reluctant to propose solutions because I'm not from these communities um, and it should be up to them. Um, I can talk about the history, I'm pretty confident in that, but, um, well, to some extent, uh, but, but it should be up to, to them to decide what to do. Um, so I, but going forward, um, I'm actually uh, starting a PhD. This is gonna be my project, um, so I'll have a little bit more time and resources. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Heather McGee. You should go to her book signing after this. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's um, Mindy Thompson Full of, um, who wrote, wrote, I should reach out to these people. <laughs> uh, some, I've, I've talked to some of them. Um, I mean, not Jane Jacobs, she's no longer with us. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I intend to collaborate more. Because um, again, these people are, with a project that would just not be possible without this work. Um, I'm like almost a tertiary source, like rather than, you know, primary source, secondary source, I'm, a, I'm like a third one, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. But. Thanks. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Gomal Rashid. I'm from the DC area and I've, I have friends that are also urban planners, so I appreciate that work a lot. Um, because I think when a lot of these cities were designed, I'm not sure urban planners were really looking at were involved or were actually like uh, looking at all of the elements. So I have friends that are now looking at that. I think I have, I have comments and then I have a question. Um, generally, I think what I've found is like communities don't, like I was in Long Island City when Amazon decided that they wanted to come into, the, into Long Island City to build their headquarters. And the community did get up and say, like, no, this is going to price us out already. We're already being priced out. Yeah. We're going to price out even more. Sunnyside? Uh, no, literally Long Island City, 
like uh, right by the Queensborough Bridge was where it was coming. Um, and, you know, then it moved to DC and that area has already been very gentrified. Um, and so I think the other part of it is just pay attention to like the presence of who's coming into your community to build the community, right? Whole Foods shows up, you run, uh, things like that, where you're like, you know, it's, it's catering to a specific population. Um, I saw it in Harlem. I, I lived in New York City as well, so like I saw it, you know, I saw the Whole Foods in Harlem on like Juneteenth, the first time it was celebrated, and I was like, oh, okay, this is problematic. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the, to, to raise awareness in your research around the signs of like where, because I think sometimes people don't see it until it's already too late. So like, yeah. what are the type of signs that you've seen in your research that sort of shows the incoming gentrification um, and the design that's sort of happening so that people can speak up before it's moved along a certain process? And then the second is, are there laws that you could highlight in your research that really created some of the, you know, uh, implications that we've seen now? So, like, yeah. and I think that's to, under, to have part of your research, under, like, have your you know, audience understand how those laws had impact. Because sometimes we don't pay attention. It's just, like, part of our... Like, I don't know what get like, I'm not on a daily basis looking at, like, what gets passed in Congress and, like, what the downward implications are, but, like, to understand the historical context by which all of this happened and all of the little things. Because I know in D.C., in Ward 7 and 8, the federal government has presence, and when the federal government shows up, it's generally to try to help with jobs, but, like, that's not really what ends up happening. It ends up deeply gentrifying a neighborhood right? Um, and like who's showing up in the federal government in your neighborhoods rather than like you know in this case it was DHS <laughs> so like I just want to say like I think like how do we get more awareness and education like on the signs of gentrification so that we can react to it yeah um, the second question that you were asking um, what policies led to this. So again, those two bills in particular are, that's like a key takeaway I think, is the 1949 Housing Act and the 56 Freeway Bill. The 49 Housing Act provided the two-thirds uh, funding for slum clearance, and then the, the Highway Bill actually provided 90% federal fi financing, which I didn't mention. So what that meant is that if a city was doing a road project when, the, when this bill was in effect, and Oh, dope. That makes sense. If a city wanted to upgrade a road to highway, or was doing a road project, if it updated it to federal highway standards, then the federal government just came in and paid for it. And that's, that's partially re 